Let us pray. Blessed are you, O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Blessed you are, our God and Father, for you have predestined us in love to be your sons and daughters in your Son, Jesus Christ. You have freely bestowed your grace upon us in your beloved Son. You have made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of your will, the plan to unite all things in Christ. You have sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. You build your church, gathering and perfecting her as Christ's glorious bride, granting her forgiveness and giving her new life and equipping her through your word and the sacraments for service in the world and giving to her officers, pastors, elders, and deacons to rule her and serve her and extend her mission. We thank you and adore you, O God of our salvation. Blessed are you, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our kinsman, redeemer, this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're looking this morning at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, it is one of the most famous stories uh, in the history of the world. It continues to be well known even in our biblically illiterate age. Uh, we have Good Samaritan laws to protect uh, those who try to help people in need. We have children's stories like The Little Engine That Could, uh, which is based on this parable. Uh, politicians as diverse as George Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump have all invoked this parable in their public rhetoric. The Good Samaritan has become a kind of stand-in or symbol for anyone who's seeking to do good, for anyone who's seeking to show mercy. We label them a Good Samaritan. That's just part of our cultural speech, our cultural vocabulary. And that's why we're looking at this story today. It's really a story about mercy, about compassion. Uh, we ordain two men to the office of deacon today. And really, in a lot of ways, this service is, this sermon is a charge to them, uh, because deacons are assistants to the pastors and elders in the church. They can wear many different hats. Uh, but if you look at what the first deacons who are ordained in the New Covenant in, in, in the church, we could say, in Acts chapter 6, you find that it is particularly this calling to show mercy, to serve as official agents or instruments of the church's compassion. This is one of the chief responsibilities of deacons. This is why we have deacons, to lead us in this uh, way. They do other things as well, but this is one of the central functions of the diaconate. But really, I want you to understand, this is for all of us, a message for all of us, a charge for all of us. Showing mercy is really a responsibility that all Christians have. And so this story really is for all of us. This charge is really for all of us. Now, I think a lot of times this story is read in kind of a shallow way. Not that it's unhelpful if you read it this way. It just doesn't go far enough. The story is very simple, and it's read sometimes in an overly simplistic way. you got a man who falls into trouble. you got two religious guys who pass him by. And then this total stranger of a different ethnicity stops and shows him mercy. And so now go and do likewise. Go be a good neighbor. And so it's this neat little story with a moral lesson attached. 
And certainly there's a lot of good that comes from reading it that way, but I don't think that goes far enough. This is not just a simple morality tale. This is not like Aesop's fables. The parables of Jesus are quite different uh, from that kind of genre. They work at a much deeper level. So let's look at this story more deeply and, and we'll see uh, exactly what's going on here. What happens? You have a lawyer, so uh, an expert in the Jewish law, an expert in the Torah, the law of Moses, comes to Jesus wanting to trap him. That's his motivation. He wants to trap Jesus. He asks Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Probably expecting Jesus to say something negative about the law that could get Jesus into trouble. Jesus returns volley with a question of his own. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And then the lawyer gives a summary of the law, and he gets this right. It's the same summary of the law that Jesus usually gives. Love God and love neighbor. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and from Leviticus 19, two texts from the Torah that really summarize the essence of the law's demands. And Jesus agrees with his answer. He says, great, that's correct. Do this and you will live. If he will faithfully fulfill the law, if he will keep covenant with God, if he will obey the love commands, he will inherit eternal life. But the lawyer wants to justify himself. That might simply mean he wants to win the argument with with, with Jesus. He wants to trick Jesus into saying something that would get Jesus into trouble so he could vindicate himself and condemn Jesus. Or it could be more ultimate than that. It could mean that what he really wants here is to justify himself in a more ultimate sense before God. And so he asks a question that would allow him to justify the way he has practiced keeping the law up to this point. He wants to justify the way he has lived his life. He wants a rationalization, a justification for how he's applied the law to his situation. And so he says, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And that is the question that prompts this story of the Good Samaritan. Now, we'll look at the story in just a minute. Uh, but I want to jump to its aftermath here to show you how it fits together, what's really going on here. At the end of the story, after he's told the story, Jesus asks, which of the three passers-by was a neighbor to the fallen man? Okay, so think about this. The teacher asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus asked, Who was a neighbor to the man left for dead? Put those two questions together. Who is my neighbor and who was a neighbor to the man left for for dead? Put those two questions together and then ask, who in this story does Jesus want us to identify with first and foremost? Put those questions together and you see it's not the priest or the Levite or even the Good Samaritan. First and foremost, we are asked to see ourselves as the fallen man, half dead in the ditch, in need of mercy and rescue. The teacher asks, who is my neighbor, thinking I can limit the scope of who my neighbor is. Jesus turns it around and shows actually you need a neighbor. And so what's going on here? The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? At the end, Jesus turns it around and says, who is a neighbor to you, in effect? And that's so important. And I think it helps us to see what's going on here. The Good Samaritan, first and foremost, represents Jesus himself. We need a neighbor. We need a Good Samaritan. And who is our Good Samaritan? 
Jesus himself. Jesus is really the hero of the story. I'll give you some other clues that point this direction as we go. But just know this, traditionally, this is the primary reading of this story in the history of the church. It's primarily read this way. Let me unpack it for you a little bit more in this way. The man who is uh, on a journey experiences a fall, really a threefold fall. In verse 30, he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and quite literally this was a descent. Jerusalem was the city on a hill, right? It was the heavenly city, the, the city that reached into the heavens, at least symbolically, the city on a hill, the city on a mountain. Quite literally, going from Jerusalem to Jericho meant going down. It's actually a descent of about 3,200 feet over about a 20-mile span. That's one fall. Further, he's traveling eastward. Think about this. Jerusalem is uh, like another Eden. Eden, of course, was also on a mountain. But Jerusalem is the garden city. It's like a, a renewed garden of Eden, as it were. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden of Eden, they were sent out eastward. When Cain sinned, he was driven even further away from Eden in an eastward direction into exile. This too is a kind of fall. So this man, he's traveling away from Eden, away from Jerusalem. He's now on the outskirts of the promised land, entering into exile as it were. And then of course the man falls among thieves. Thieves who strip him naked, which is a sign of shame and humiliation. They wound him, leaving him half dead. He's been abandoned. He's all alone. He's left to just bleed out and die. That is how Jesus wants the lawyer, and I would say all of us, to see ourselves. That's our situation. We're the man half dead in the ditch. We need a neighbor. Before you can go be a neighbor, you need Jesus to come be a neighbor to you. Uh, in fact, you could say the man in the ditch uh, could really serve as a kind of symbol of Israel's condition in exile and under the curse. Israel's condition as Jesus comes to her. And so now unpack the story further. What happens here? Uh, can the temple save Israel, the temple ministry? Can what happens at the temple save Israel? No. You have a priest who ministers at the temple, who sees the man and passes by on the other side. He's going to serve in the temple. And in fact, he probably doesn't help the man in the ditch because that man may, after all, be dead. And if the priest touches a dead body, he will become unclean and he won't be able to serve in the temple. The priest has no mercy. True mercy can't be found in the temple system. What about the law? Can the law save Israel? Well, no. You have a Levite, a teacher of the law. And when he sees the man, he passes by on the other side as well. He too does not want to become unclean by perhaps touching a corpse. And so he doesn't show any compassion towards the fallen one. There's no mercy in the law itself for sinners. Now, in the terms of the progression of the story, what would a first century audience have expected to hear next? You've moved from a priest, which is kind of the highest office in Israel, to a Levite, which is sort of in the next ring out. After that, you'd probably expect uh, a, a Jewish layman to show up in the story. But that's not what happens. There's a twist here. There's a wrinkle in the story. The story takes a shocking turn. A certain Samaritan was journeying and saw the man, came to him, and had compassion on him. A Samaritan 
a member of a people group hated by the Jews. In fact, you could really say the Samaritans were the most hated group. Uh, the Jews hated a lot of people, but they especially hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were viewed as a miserable half-breed uh, from the north. Uh, they were the dregs of the earth. Uh, the Jews were certainly victims of racism, but they were also racist themselves, and they despised the Samaritans. They wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. Anytime there's an encounter with Samaritans, like, say, Jesus and the woman at the well in John chapter 4, it's a big controversy. It's a scandal. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were the result of Jews intermixing and intermingling and intermarrying with Gentiles. Uh, so in terms of their blood lineage, they were compromised. Their religion was a compromised mashup of Jewish and pagan elements, taking some, some elements from Judaism, but mixing them in with the pagans who lived in that same area. And while there are probably some Samaritans who could be counted as true believers in the true God, none of them would have been accepted by Jews. Jews considered them all unclean and despicable. And so the moment the Samaritan enters this story, it becomes a racially charged story. There is a racial element to this story that we should not miss. It's one of the things that made the story so scandalous in its original context. Maybe that's been diluted for us because we don't understand all the dynamics. But if you, if you can enter into the racial animosity that's there, then you can see just how scandalous it is. You have a Jew who's being helped by a Samaritan. An outsider is helping an insider. A person from the margins is ministering to someone at the center. Someone without privilege ministering to someone with privilege. Someone who's unclean ministering to the clean. I don't really know that there's any analogy that can quite capture it, but maybe it'd be like a black man stopping to help a white man on the side of the road at the height of the Jim Crow era. It's just the kind of thing that would be scandalous when the wrong guy turns out to be the good guy. Uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, when Jesus tells parables, he doesn't just make them up. You know, G we think of Jesus as a great storyteller, and he was, but all the raw materials from his, for his stories come out of the Old Testament. And there's actually a fairly obscure but really important story in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 that probably serves as the basis for Jesus' parable here. In that story in Second Chronicles, we find a time when the Jews are actually in sin and they're judged for their sin and they're taken captive by, a, by Syria and they're hauled off to Samaria as exiles. But the prophet Oded speaks on their behalf to the Samaritans and in response some men from Samaria come and help the Jews. They come to the aid of these Jews who have been left half dead, as it were, in a ditch as they've been taken off into exile. And so these men from Samaria come and they clothe the naked Jews and they feed them and they anoint them and they even let them ride on their donkeys. And where do they take them? They take them to the city of Jericho. And then the Samaritans go back home. But they took care of these Jews and they took them to the city of Jericho, these Jews were half dead and their fellow countrymen from Israel would not help them. In fact, they were part of the problem. But the despised Samaritans from the, from the north, they responded to the word of the prophet and came to their rescue. In 2 Chronicles 28, the Samaritans acted as neighbors. They acted as brothers. They were the original good Samaritans. 
So this story in Luke 10 is not the first time we encounter a good Samaritan in Scripture. In Jesus' parable, as with Second Chronicles, one of the most shocking things that you have is the contrast between the Samaritan and the other Israelites. The contrast is so sharp in both stories. The contrast of the Samaritan in Luke 10 with the priest and the Levite is shocking and fascinating. The Levite and the priest refused to offer a sacrifice of generosity. For the sake of keeping the law, they broke the law. They forgot the word of the Lord through the prophet, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That the real fulfillment of the law is found in showing mercy. And it doesn't matter what other sacrifices you offer to God if you won't offer the sacrifice of mercy when need arises, when it's, when, when it's time to do so, then your sacrifices don't mean anything. They don't matter. They're not going to be accepted. And so in effect, the Samaritan becomes the true priest and Levite, offering true sacrifice and fulfilling the law's true meaning by showing mercy. This is anticipating something that happens later on in the New Testament when the Jews get cut out for their law-breaking and Gentiles become considered covenant keepers because they put their faith in Jesus and they show mercy to those in need. The priest and the Levite are lawbreakers. The Samaritan becomes a law-keeper. He becomes the epitome of what it means to keep covenant. The model of what it means to be a covenant member even though he's an outsider. The Samaritan saw the man and had compassion on him. Now this is interesting too and another important clue that shows us how we should really understand who the Samaritan is. The verb that's used here for his compassion is used in three parables of Jesus. And each time, I think you can make a really strong case, it is uh, being used of Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the one who shows compassion. And so it's here in Luke 10. It's in Luke 15, where the father has compassion on his wayward son, the prodigal son. And it's used in Matthew 18 for the king who has compassion on the man who owes him a huge debt. But because of the king's compassion, that debt is forgiven. So there's three uses of this same verb, compassion. And then the same verb shows up about ten other times in the New Testament. And every single time, Jesus is the subject of the verb. This verb, compassion. He is in the parables and in the gospel narratives. Jesus is presented as the one who shows compassion. Again and again, He is the compassionate one who, who, who shows mercy to the needy and the helpless and the broken. The Good Samaritan shows compassion. Whose compassion is this really? It's the compassion of Jesus. This is another clue, I think. It's a very strong clue that the Samaritan is a symbol of Jesus himself. So what does Jesus do for us? Well, what did the Samaritan do for the man in the ditch? He bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And I think you know what to do with those symbols. Oil, of course, is often a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Wine is often a symbol of blood. Indeed, oil and wine were used in the, at the temple in the sacrificial system and sacrificial worship. And so again, you see, the Samaritan becomes a kind of priest to the needy man. He acts as a priest. He puts the man on his own animal and he takes him to an inn to take care of him. Uh, in Augustine's uh, interpretation of this story, the inn becomes a symbol of the church. And so the church comes to be understood as a kind of convalescent home where wounded sinners heal. 
And that's really the idea. The Samaritan gives the innkeeper two denarii and says, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come again. What's language of coming again? We know that's language about Jesus is going away and coming back. In fact, it's interesting. We know from Matthew chapter 20 uh, that a denarii is about a day's wage. And so if the Samaritan gives two denarii to the innkeeper, that might imply he intends to come back on the third day. See how much fun it can be to interpret the parables of Jesus? You can just keep going with this. What is Jesus doing? He's really telling a story about himself. He takes on our burdens and cares for us. He shows us mercy and compassion. He rescues us at his own expense. He covers our needs. He pays the cost. He ensures our healing. This is how Martin Luther put it. Luther said, If Christ the Samaritan, if Christ the Samaritan had not come, we would have all died. He it is who binds our wounds, carries us into the church, and is now healing us. So we are all now fully under the physician's care. Luther, there's just just kind of mixing metaphors. Christ is a a Samaritan. He's the great physician. The church is the inn. I guess that would make pastors and and, and elders innkeepers. it's It's all there. It's all packed in. But you see what's happening in this story. It's all about what Jesus does for us. And so what does that mean? If this is the fundamental meaning of the story, what do we do with it? I think it helps us to understand how the story works. See, before you can be a neighbor, you have to be neighbored by Jesus. Before you can give neighbor love to others, you have to receive his neighbor love. Before you can show mercy, you must be shown mercy. Before you can be a blessing, you have to be blessed. In order to give love, you have to receive love from Jesus. You can't give love you don't have. You can't give love until you have received it. You can't give what you don't have, so you have to receive from Jesus before you can give to others. You can't help others unless you are first helped by Jesus Himself. But... Those who have been shown mercy by Jesus, those who have received his love and his help, inevitably will show that love and that mercy and that help to others. See, we really do have to show mercy to those in need we encounter. Mercy is not optional. Indeed, the whole scripture is clear. We will be judged at the last day. We will be judged at the last day. And we will either be shown mercy at the last day or not, depending on whether or not we have shown mercy or not in this life. The mercy we show is then in the end, at the last day, the mercy we will be shown in the judgment. See, mercy ministry is serious business. Showing compassion is not optional. This story really does propel us outward into the world to show mercy. To show mercy in the church and to show mercy beyond the walls of the church. To be a merciful and compassionate people. But again, the prerequisite for helping others, for helping those on the side of the road, is seeing that you yourself were once on the side of the road. And you were going to bleed out and die. But Jesus came to you. 
And Jesus rescued you. And because he rescued you when you were stranded on the side of the road, now when you see others stranded on the side of the road, you can help them. Jesus stooped down to save you. He provided all you need to heal, to be restored. In Jesus, God has become your neighbor. In Jesus, God is your neighbor and He is a good neighbor to you. In Jesus, you are the recipient of God's neighbor love. Now, now understanding that, now go and do likewise. Don't just go and do likewise. Go and do likewise understanding what Jesus has done for you. What Jesus has done for you, now you go and do for others. You replicate that in some way. See, this story is not primarily about your resolve to go out and be a good and merciful person. It's not about your resolve to go be a good Samaritan. It's about the goodness and mercy of Christ. It's about His resolve to do us good. His resolve to show us compassion. But again, because Christ is good and merciful to us, now we do resolve to go and be good and merciful to others. See, this story is gospel before it's law. It shows us what Jesus has done for us before it calls us to go and do those same kinds of things for other people. That's how it works. You have to see that Jesus himself is the good Samaritan and you're the guy in the ditch. And because Jesus has rescued you, now when you see others in their own ditch, you can go and rescue them. But what does that look like? What does it look like to go and do likewise? If we're going to carry out this parable, knowing what Jesus has done for us, and now we want that same love and mercy and compassion we've been shown to flow through us out towards others, what does that look like? Let me sketch it for you in a few directions. Note here that the Good Samaritan showed mercy at great personal cost. He no doubt got dirty and bloody in helping this man. It is not easy or cheap to really help people in the ways that they need. Sometimes we want to help people, we just want it to be easy to do so. It's not. It comes at great personal cost. The Good Samaritan here cared for his enemy, even his racial enemy. Note this, there were no natural bonds tying them together. There was no reason for him to think that this man deserved his help. No reason for him to think this man had some kind of claim on him. They didn't have family bonds. They didn't have ethnic bonds. And yet still, he helped. He sought to rescue the man anyway. He stuck with the wounded man until the problem was fully solved. It wasn't just like he threw a few dollars his way and then carried on. No, he actually saw it through to the end to make sure the problem was really and fully solved. It was a lasting and ongoing effort that no doubt built a relationship between them. The Good Samaritan didn't just help someone who could repay the favor someday. There's no expectation of any return. He becomes the man's advocate, really in a sense going above and beyond what would have been necessary. The Good Samaritan met physical, social, and economic needs. Get this, he provided food, shelter, medical care, transportation, even friendship. It was a holistic form of ministry. And yeah, this is what deacons are called to do. It's one of the primary functions of deacons, but it's really something all of us, if you look at the New Testament, this is an obligation that belongs to all of us as God's people. 
The good Samaritan became a neighbor to the person in need. More than that, he became a brother to the person in need. His love established a neighbor bond or a brotherly bond between them. Now, obviously, this would not be something you could ever do for everyone. You can't help every last person on the planet. We are finite, and it's not a sin to be finite. We all have our limitations, and we all have all kinds of other demands and obligations placed on us in addition to this one to show mercy and compassion. But we cannot neglect the call of the Jericho Road. Mercy ministry is integral to the life and the ministry and the mission of the church. It's not just an optional extra. It is integral. It's intrinsic to what we're all about as God's people. See, the parable shows us what neighbor love and mercy really look like. Again, go back to the lawyer's question that uh, that prompted the story. That question, who is my neighbor? Why does he ask that question? He asks that question because he wants to limit the scope of his obligation to love. He knows the law says, love your neighbor. Well, he wants to limit the demands of the law, limit his obligation to love. The law calls for love, but he wanted to use the law really as an excuse for not loving certain people. And he certainly didn't want to love Samaritans. Sure, that's why Jesus picked out the Samaritan and made him the hero of the story because this man probably despised Samaritans. What the lawyer wants to do is gerrymander a definition of love around those he's already got an affection for, those who are just like him and therefore will be easy for him to love. It's like he's going and looking for the fine print in the Torah that would justify all his prejudices. So he only has to love people like himself. But the reality is, if you only love people like yourself, that's really just self-love spread over a wider area. That's not adequate. That's not the kind of love the law calls us to. It's not the kind of love Jesus calls us to. Jesus wants us to make neighbors, that is to form bonds of neighborly love, even with people very different from ourselves. And so Jesus turns the lawyer's question around. It's not, who is my neighbor? With an aim to limiting obligation. It's, am I a neighbor? And I see the fullness of my obligation. Am I being a neighbor to others around me in the way that I should? Do I see that my neighbor could be anyone that God puts in my life's path? As I walk through life, as I go on my way, my neighbor could be anyone God brings across my path. The lawyer wanted to trap Jesus, but Jesus actually traps him. He wanted to trap Jesus with the law, but Jesus actually traps him with love. Because Jesus tells a story where it's impossible for the lawyer to escape the right conclusion. That's what master teachers do, right? They lead their students to the answer where they see there's no other way. This has to be it. That's what Jesus has done here. This lawyer wanted to gather evidence so he could condemn Jesus as a lawbreaker. Instead, he gets exposed as a lawbreaker himself. The law crushes the lawyer. He realizes he's not loving this way. He wanted to justify himself, but he ends up condemned. We can't do what the lawyer does here. We should not seek to limit the scope of those we are to love. The truth is, our neighbor can be anyone. We don't get to pick our neighbors. God does that for us. 
And our neighbors have claims on us. Like the lawyer, we can look for ways to limit the scope of our obligation. I think we do this a lot. I think we have a tendency to do this a lot. You know, liberals do it. Political liberals, cultural liberals. Liberals tend to pass by on the other side of the road when they see a need because they expect the government, the state, to take care of people's needs. And so they look for a statist solution. And so they can rationalize not getting involved because, hey, the government will do it. The state will do it. We've got programs to take care of that. But, you know, the reality is the evidence is mounting that uh, many, if not most, government welfare programs actually make poverty worse, not better. We don't need the great society. We need more good Samaritans. We don't need a government social worker. We need a good Samaritan. And I'm not saying government can never have any place at all. I think that's a debate we can have. But we certainly should not look to the government to solve these kinds of problems. These are problems that traditionally and historically the church has solved by being a good Samaritan, being a good neighbor. But you know, conservatives can pass by on the other side of the road as well. Conservatives rightly emphasize personal responsibility. But sometimes they can do so in a way that justifies non-involvement. And so conservatives can end up victim-blaming. Oh, you're poor? Well, you must be lazy. It's got to be your fault. There's no other explanation for your poverty. Oh, you're half dead on the side of the the road? Well, you should have been carrying a firearm. Don't you know your protection is your own responsibility? All right, we can actually do that. Conservatives need to be reminded, you are your brother's keeper. You are your neighbor's keeper. And you have received compassion, and so you should show compassion. You need to stay on the side of the street where the problem is. Stay on the side of the road where your hurting neighbor is. And no, you don't get to choose the race or the religion or the politics or the social class of your neighbor. Again, it's just whoever comes across your path and is in need. Love transcends all those barriers. We're to love all. We're to serve all. I actually believe this story is incredibly important and incredibly timely for our culture. I actually believe the story of the Good Samaritan contains in itself all that we need to fix everything that's wrong with our culture today. The parable of the Good Samaritan holds the answers. It holds the solution to all of our modern political and racial divides. Everybody can see how divided we are in our nation. Racially, politically, culturally. What do we do about it? I think this story is the answer. A nation full of Good Samaritans would be a nation at peace, a nation full of peace. If the church was full of Good Samaritans, our nation would be transformed. When we go and do likewise, those divides, those divisions will be healed. When we go and do likewise, our land will be transformed. Our families and our churches should become laboratories of love. Laboratories of love where we work out solutions to the problems we face, where we work out ways to help others in need. Not just loving those we choose to love, not just loving those just like ourselves, but loving those God gives us to love. The sample of humanity 
God gives us, as Chesterton puts it. Those people in your life that are lonely, that are needy, that are hurting. There's all kinds of needs out there besides just financial needs. There are a lot of people who are very well off financially, but they're hurting in all kinds of other ways. They're in their own ditch. It's not a financial ditch. It's some other kind of ditch. But they're bleeding out. We need to ask that God would give us eyes to see those needs, that our spiritual antenna would be up, that we would receive those distress signals and know where we ought to run with the anointing balm, the healing power of the Gospel. And finally, consider this. That route from Jericho to Jerusalem is a well-trod path in the Scriptures. And it's a pathway that especially has to do with conquest. So for example, the, the, the journey of Joshua, when Joshua was leading Israel in to conquer the promised land, to, to, to conquer the land of Canaan, this is the route he took from Jericho to Jerusalem. You know, it's also the route that Jesus takes. You look at the Gospels, you find as Jesus was going to Jerusalem to be crucified, he passes through Jericho. He follows that same route, that same itinerary. He stops off in Jericho, makes a a stop and stays there. He follows the Jericho road. And of course, that pathway for Jesus is a pathway for victory, just as it was for Joshua before him. But now it's a victory. It's a triumph that will be won through compassion and through sacrificial love. Yes, Jesus will go from Jericho to Jerusalem to triumph totally. He will triumph over sin and death, but He will triumph precisely because He shows mercy. Because that's what the cross is all about. It's the ultimate act of mercy, the ultimate act of compassion. He makes a neighbor, he makes the whole human race into his neighbor and rescues all of us through his act of sacrificial love. Joshua followed the Jericho road to Jerusalem. Jesus traveled the Jericho road to Jerusalem. The church needs to follow that road as well. We need to hear the call of the Jericho road. We must travel the same path. The pathway of the cross. The pathway of love and of mercy. This is how we conquer. We will conquer and the kingdom will come when we go and do likewise. When we go and do deeds of love and mercy. A church that does not care for the marginalized will itself be marginalized. That's God's poetic justice, as Tim Keller says. We don't care for those around us. God's not going to care a whole lot for us. But if we show mercy, if we pour ourselves out in deeds of love and kindness, then we'll conquer. A compassionate church will go forth conquering and to conquer. You want to see the world transformed? You want to see the culture healed and changed? Go and do likewise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for sending Jesus to be our Good Samaritan. That He has come as our great deacon to show us mercy. He has come as our priest to teach us, to heal us, to restore us. We thank You for His sacrificial offering that makes us whole before You, that forgives our sins and cleanses us. We know by His stripes we are healed. Father, we were bleeding out, half dead in the ditch with no hope, abandoned, stripped naked and humiliated with nothing. 
but Jesus came to us. Father, when we see others who are in ditches of their own, half dead and bleeding out, may we go and do likewise. May we go and show them the compassion and mercy of Jesus. May we be agents of healing and restoration and reconciliation. May you do this in us and through us and for us. That your kingdom might come. That the whole world might be transformed. That the whole world might be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what we long for. This is our hope. This is our plea. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand for prayer. O Lord God, the heavens declare your glory, the earth your riches, the universe your temple. Yet of your own good pleasure you have created life and given happiness. You, Father, have made us who we are and given us what we have. In you we live and move and have being. Your providence sets our boundaries and wisely administers all events in our lives. We thank you for the riches of us in Jesus, for the clear revelation of him in your word, where we, we behold his glory. Father, you have blessed all of us with this church family, our brothers and sisters who surround us each day and gather today to sit at your table. Refresh us as we pray, strengthen us, and renew our zeal to live the lives that you have created us to live. Father, we thank you for Mike and Grady, ordained as servant leaders in our church today. You have blessed them with wisdom, compassion, and energy, and their leadership is a gift from you to this congregation. Indeed, you have graciously blessed us richly with our pastor and with our leadership here at TPC, and we praise you for them. Continue to watch over them, we ask. Father, you know the needs of this congregation, those who mourn the loss of family and friends, those who need work or better work, those who face important decisions and need your wisdom, those who seek marriage or children, those traveling, for marriages and families to be stronger and always loving, for Peter and John as they seek a clear path forward for Theopolis, for TPC as we consider expanding our facilities. We ask, Father, that you meet these needs as you best see fit. And Lord, we know that there are those in the congregation today, our family members, our friends who are sick and afflicted or have other needs, and we lift them up to you individually now. Father, you are our God, and and your sovereignty extends over all things. Your dominion extends to all of creation, every part of our lives, our families, our jobs, our health, our church, our schools, our universities, our courts, our government. By you, kings reign and rulers rule. And so we as your people ask that you have mercy upon us to give us leaders who will regard your name as holy and who will understand that in whatever office they hold, you have ordained them to be your servants and they are accountable to you. We pray specifically today for our nation, for President Trump and Vice President Pence, for our senators and our representatives, that through their actions you would give us peace. We ask for wisdom for our civic leaders. We pray for those who serve our nation in the military, those who protect us in the cities and communities, that you would protect them as they labor to protect us. We pray for our court system and our judges, that they would be just in their decisions. And as we seek to replace the Supreme Court justice, 
We ask you, Father, to give us a justice who is wise and fears you. And we ask, Father, that you would bring new life to your church and that we may begin our repentance at our own house and in our own churches as we plead for you to have mercy upon us as a nation, that the light of Christ may shine with great glory in our land and that there would be a revival of knowledge of you. Father, without which our land will mourn and our people will perish. And we ask these things and whatever else you see we need in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who himself taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.